You're listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. I'm Mary Hartnett. Today in the program, we get a preview of Thursday's The Power of Hair Expo. The event is a celebration of black hair and hairstyles as we continue to honor Black History Month. And Jim Scott celebrates baseball legend Hank Aaron in another small wonder. But first, a look at the news, especially the legislative news this week. Governor Kim Reynolds' bill to merge and eliminate 40% of the state's board and commissions advanced Wednesday in the Iowa Senate. The House is moving forward with parts of the governor's bill. Reynolds' bill was met with a lot of opposition at a subcommittee hearing Wednesday from Iowans who don't want the licensing boards that oversee their professions to be merged with other professions. Cassie Sampson with the American Massage Therapy Association of Iowa said the current licensing board helps to ensure human traffickers don't get a massage therapy license. By diluting the resources and experts of the board, allowing only one massage therapist to sit on the merged board. It will become easier for traffickers to slip through the cracks. Taylor Rager with Americans for Prosperity supports the bill, saying licensure is often a burden. There's multiple studies and stats that show you that we rank high when it comes to the percentage of Iowans that are required to get a permission slip to work. House lawmakers advance their own bipartisan version of the bill Wednesday that eliminates several boards but doesn't change professional licensing. And this week, the Iowa House Education Subcommittee advanced a bill to overhaul the state's area education agencies to the full House committee. This bill addresses some of the complaints about Governor Reynolds' plan. It included allowing local districts to contract for special education services outside of the AEAs. The House three-year plan would not cut any money from the system. By year three, school districts could choose where to spend funds for education and media services, but they would need to spend special education money through their local AEA. At Thursday's subcommittee hearing, several educational leaders and lobbyists said they were encouraged by the new bill. Melissa Peterson of the Iowa State Education Association said she still opposed it, but she was encouraged by its proposal to create a task force with the many stakeholders of the AEAs. But we just want to make sure we have parents, we have teachers, we have specialists who are involved in education services and special education services involved in that conversation. Michelle Johnson of the Iowa Association of School Boards said they were undecided about the bill, but she was pleased with this bill's language on special education funding. It's our understanding that the intent of this is to ensure that special education services and the way the funding flows it's very similar to how it used to be. It'll go to the school district and then to the AEA. The House Education Subcommittee today also advanced a bill that would raise the minimum salary for new teachers to $50,000 over two years. On Wednesday, the Senate Education Committee approved a different plan to overhaul Iowa's AEAs. The Senate plan would give districts control over 90% of their special ed money, but 10% would still go directly to the local AEA. You're listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. I'm Mary Hartnett. This week, Western Iowa Tech Community College held an event that celebrated the styles and culture of black hair. The Power of Hair Expo is in its second year. It encourages attendees to explore their hairstyles, model those styles, and reflect how changing one's hairstyle can be liberating and empowering. Lashana Moyle is the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Coordinator at Western Iowa Tech. I spoke with her about the event. She says some of the impetus for the program came from her own experience 
experiences and reactions to her hairstyles at work. She also talks about the Crown Act. It's a law that prohibits race-based hair discrimination. Here's Lashana Moyle. My thought on why we're now starting to have this discussion is, so the Crown Act is um, what we presented on at Power Pair last year. That was our introduction to the Crown Act, which um, there are um, policies in several states, but not here in Iowa. And the reason that I kind of grabbed onto that was my own experiences with my hair and the journey that I've had. And when I, once I started to realize and have this discussion that there was research and evidence out there, I really wanted to pull that in to be more supportive of this. And so I think that this um, topic is growing, if you will, because we are starting to see the impact at a larger level. It's not just an individual. So at that micro level, it's more about groups and then the larger picture within society and how this impacts education and employment um, and and not simply, if it, if it is simple, right, an identity, but the larger um, scope of hair and what power it carries and how we really want to now celebrate, bring um, the history of hair forward and and then just celebrate who we are regardless of what our hair looks like, whether it's natural, flat ironed, weave, wigs, whatever that looks like. Um, we, we just see within research and have experienced um, possible push out due to the way that our hair looks. And um, we're at a time in society where we really want to become our authentic selves and be comfortable in that. And so within education, especially, um, we have a duty, right, to talk about these things and bring that forward. And so for me, that really was the catalyst in how Power of Hair was born. Now, you talked about your experiences. Um, Did you find people really pushing back on you because of your hairstyle? Yes, and even within my own family. And so I'm biracial. Um, On my father's side, that's my African-American side of the family, and my grandmother, whom grew up in the South um, and and very traditional in that sense in terms of her experiences and what she brought forward, um, she would refer to me as having good hair and would tell me, don't cut your hair, don't cut your hair, right? Because my hair used to be very, very long. It's thick, it's curly, kinky. And for so many years... I just listened to that. But when I would flat iron my hair, which I did for many, many years, when I would present in different spaces, people would tell me, oh, I didn't even recognize you, or you look so beautiful, as opposed to when my hair was kinky and and down. It was almost like there was a night and day in terms of the reaction I received from other people. One was perceived as more professional or more beautiful than than the curly and, and the kinky. And I really became tired of it, and and this is a journey in my own life, and everybody's is different, but um, now that I'm older, I really don't want to be so concerned with what others think of me, and I find that I am in a role in which um, I impact others, and in being myself and accepting and embracing who I am is so important, so then I can then hopefully um, reflect that onto the others that I work with and allow them to find beauty in whomever it is that they are, no matter what their hair or anything else looks like. I think that compared to like back in the 90s when I was beginning to work a lot and I would talk to people and look around at workplaces, people were very cookie cutter, especially women, I mean, and what we wore, we had the little suits and little ties at the neck and everyone had the same hairdo and you hardly ever, well, you honestly, in a lot of offices, you hardly ever saw a black person, even if you did, it was a secretary. And I think, do you think that has helped change this to kind of more black Americans in the corporate workforce? 
I certainly hope so. And if not, I hope that it does continue to support some of these challenges that we've seen. Um, you know, when we had Horses, Hoops, and Heritage, which was specific to Hispanic Heritage Month, we talked about um, AOC and her hoops and how that was changing things for people and that representation. And the discussion is happening. And so I hope that because we are having these discussions that yes, it is starting to, we're starting to see that movement and that change. Um, you know, this is the most liberating thing I've ever done in its hair, it's an accessory, which is crazy to say, right? I cut my hair and it's the most powerful thing I've ever done, but it gave me a sense of who I am and empowerment. And again, so if I can create that for anyone or um, help an organization start this conversation, then for me, that's winning. I saw that there's going to be a, a runway element to this show. Can you talk about that and how that will work? Absolutely. Last year when we had our first um, power pair, we didn't actually have a runway. Um, we just created a stop here, stop here. And the idea with this year's actual runway is, again, that celebratory facet and, and giving those that choose to walk the runway that feeling of importance and beauty, regardless, again, of what they're wearing, how their hair looks, because we know, again, that runways are associated with, with beauty and with excitement and importance even. And so the idea behind the runway is just to elevate that another level and, and say, yes, there is beauty in this space and hair can be modeled, hair can be beautiful and is. And so we're gonna, we're gonna have throw out all the sparkle and, and join in in some fun and celebration. And people will talk about their hair choices and maybe how they, I look, cause I know as a woman, it sounds stereotypical, but I, I love to talk to other women about their hair and their hair products and what they use. That's just kind of a, how women relate sometimes. Yes, we do. And, and that's the thing. Organic conversations have come up from this event about those types of things. Tell me more about how you've done this. Tell me more about who you use as a hairstylist. Tell me where you buy your products and what you use. Um, and so, again, as women, we feel more comfortable doing that sometimes. Again, this is elevating the discussion. But now, um, Power of Hair 2 will have an emphasis um, on men as well. We're going to talk more about how men are impacted by this as well. And the hope there as well is that men will start having these discussions because, again, we know within society um, there's this idea of what beauty is and or what's acceptable or not. And so men want to feel like they belong and that like they are presenting physically and look great as well. And so we need to really include them in the discussion. Part of our presentation this year will include um, some young men who have been um, turned away from different events or asked um, or told that they're not fitting into a um, dress code and it was due to their hair. And so we're going to talk about that this year. So hopefully we are engaging and again, elevating that discussion for black men as well. Is that legal to turn someone away because of their hair? In the state of Iowa? <laughs> we do not have the Crown Act here in the state of Iowa. Um, there are states that where they recognize that as discrimination. Um, but here in Iowa, we don't have anything in code um, that says that you can or cannot tell an individual to leave or change their hairstyle. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, um, on the whole, WIT has become a much more diverse place than from when I started work here eight years ago. You can see it walking the halls. You see people from, in fact, all over the world here now. You see different parts of the country, uh, different races, different religions. And I have to think that it's been a really good thing for the school and changed how things work here. Absolutely. Western Iowa Tech has the most universal um, labels and categories of difference represented on campus, and it is fantastic. I was a student here, and that's changed even since I was a student here, which wasn't that long ago, but it's been <laughs> several years. 
but it, it, it is great for the school, just like talking about power of hair. Um, there are so many other things, right? Hair is one category, but we see that um, represented in our students. And again, to bring that in, have that discussion, it's great for the institution, which is then great for our students. And the hope there again is that um, students, people from the community will see this and say, hey, I really think we should elevate the discussion on this topic. Can we do something like this? And so last year's Power of Hair um, brought up the discussion for, power, uh, excuse me, Horses, Hoops, and Heritage for Hispanic Heritage Month. And so I say that was the sister to Power of Hair. And so again, these different programs that we can create based on this is fantastic. It's a great opportunity. Um, I am so very grateful here at Western Iowa Tech to have the autonomy to do these things and, and there's been so much support and I, I know that the students are seeing that as well and it's just a good feeling and Western Iowa Tech is really doing some wonderful things. That was Lashana Moyle, the Coordinator of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Western Iowa Tech Community College. I talked with her about the second annual The Power of Black Hair Expo. It encourages attendees to explore their hairstyles, model them and reflect on how changing your hairstyle can be liberating and empowering. Don't touch my hair When is the feeling don't touch my soul When it's a rhythm I know Don't touch my crown They see the vision I found Don't touch what's not long ago, the color of one's skin was more important than batting average when it came to entry into the major leagues. Jim Scott remembers one of the pioneering ball players who integrated the league. Hammer and Hank. He was just 23 years old when, in 1957, he won the MVP award. I was in third grade. Hard as it might be to believe, I don't think I thought of him as black. He'd come up from the Negro League, in fact, the very last player from there to arrive in the bigs at a time when African-Americans were just beginning to get a place on Major League dugouts. Seems to me that Billy Bruton played next to him in center field, so he wasn't the only one on the roster, but he was early. Those old picks of that 1957 team, world champ Milwaukee Braves, have four or five others. There were more. No matter. All I know is that when I was a kid, on many a night I fell asleep at the Braves game still playing on that little radio above my bed. It's soft yellow light over the dial. I loved going to bed with the Braves on. Loved it so much that there were nights when I didn't even nod over. Coming into the ninth, the Braves may have trailed, but if the heart of the lineup was on its way to the plate, there was always a chance. Hank Aaron was there batting in the third position, followed by Matthews, a third baseman, at cleanup. Those two guys could hit, and did. That's what I remember thinking about Hammer and Henry Aaron. The guy could hit. Really, he was a little guy. Muscly, sure, but Aaron had great wrists, my father used to say. Great wrists that snapped that bat with so much torque, stadium walls came tumbling down. The biggest story of his professional life was how he finally outdid the babe and ended his career with 755 round trippers. That was two decades later, in 1976, the year of the American Bicentennial, the year our daughter came into the world. 
By that time, I was well aware of his being African-American, as was the nation, because hate mail and death threats arrived in his mail daily as he climbed ever closer to Babe Ruth's otherwise untouchable record. All that hate on the nation's 200th birthday made the country look menacing. You are not going to break this record established by the great Babe Ruth if I can help it, some guy wrote him in a letter. Whites are far more superior than, well, you put the word in. My gun is watching your every black move. Generations of kids today can't imagine someone capable of such wicked hate. But it was in the air in 1976. The man who wrote those lines wasn't alone. An African-American was threatening a great man's home run record, a great hitter who was white. The Postal Service gave him an award that year for getting mail, nearly a million letters long before email. Thousands and thousands in that massive bagful were greatly supportive and loving. But America's finest racists couldn't go down without threatening a noose from the old days. But they couldn't stop him. Hammer and Hank still owns a shoebox full of Major League Records, most career RBIs at just about 2,300, total bases at 7,000, about an extra base hits at 1,477. And there's more, there's lots more. But I thought of him not long ago, couldn't help it really, when I saw his name on a stone beneath my feet. His footprints sit on the International Civil Rights Walk of Fame at the Martin Luther King National Monument in Atlanta, and he's in good company. Thurgood Marshall, Ralph Abernathy, Edward Brooke, Rosa Parks, Jimmy Carter, and more than a dozen others. Something tells me Hammer and Hank is as proud of being there as he is in Cooperstown. Breaking that record wasn't easy, not at his age. He played in 3,300 ball games, third place all time. But it wasn't easy either to live as he did in the eye of a racial storm that will likely never fully pass off the coast and out to sea. Now that day in Atlanta, he hit number 715, one more than the babe. That day, when some people were scared of what could happen, the image I like best is that when Henry Aaron came around third, there at the plate stood his parents. Isn't that just the greatest? It was nice seeing him again at the Martin Luther King Museum. I'm thankful for that sidewalk, for those footprints, and the tracks he left in my life. Next time you're in Atlanta, walk in those prints. Try. He's sitting on 714. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's the drive into left center field. That ball is going to be. He threw his arms around his father. And as he left the home plate. Support for Small Wonders on Siouxland Public Media comes from the Daniels Osborne Law Firm in the Ho-Chunk Center in downtown Sioux City, serving the needs of clients in real estate transactions, business formation and guidance, and personal estate planning. More information is available on Facebook or at danielsosborne.com.
Support for Siouxland Public Media comes from Unity Point Health St. Luke's Cardiology Services, your partners in heart health. Their team of dedicated experts is there for you, offering advanced cardiology services right here in Siouxland. To explore their services online, go to unitypoint.org. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. More than 10,000 origami cranes hover high above the atrium at Western Iowa Tech Community College. They represent the nearly 1,100 Iowans who died during the COVID-19 pandemic. I talked with Clive artist Pam Douglas, who created Folding Cranes and Folding Community to memorialize those who died. Do you remember the story about the little girl in Hiroshima who had cancer due to the bombings? In their culture, they believe that if you fold a thousand cranes, then you'll be able to be granted your wish. And hers was for healing and to overcome this cancer. Um, She was not able to do that, to get the thousand cranes folded. So her classmates continued that process for her and finished it for her. Well, after that, it became um, a symbol for hope and healing. And I think globally, people recognize the crane as that symbol. Um, I've been folding origami for quite a while since I was a teenager. It's, it's like a puzzle, figuring out how to, to solve a puzzle. Um, plus, also, you take this flat piece of paper, and then it becomes this three-dimensional form that's, that's beautiful. You say you wanted to do something for um, suffering that we weren't noticing, and that kind of inspired you to do this. If someone else is hurting and... I'm I'm worried that they're not, especially during COVID, when we're sitting here listening to the media, people were isolated. They, at first, they couldn't even go into the hospitals to be with their loved ones when they passed away. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how devastating that must be. And where are they getting their comfort? You can't touch anybody. You can't say goodbye verbally. You can't say goodbye uh, physically, you can't hug that person. You can't hold them. And I thought, oh my gosh, what? And no one was talking about that. So of course I sit here and I think, oh my gosh, that bothers me. <laughs> so I had already made a sculpture for our church with the hope and healing of the cranes symbolized on it. And I I had heard about an artist in California who was going to try to do this for everybody in the United States that died of COVID. They were going to fold a crane. And I knew that I already had some here in a drawer <laughs> that I had folded that I hadn't used for something yet. And I thought, well, I'll try to do it for Iowa and I'll try to help. But I lost contact. I, I don't know what happened to this person. I don't know what happened to their um, project. So I started at our church, involved or included it in our All Souls of Saints feast. Um, and, you know, at the time, I thought, I never, I didn't realize I'd lived through a pandemic before. In 1957, we had a pandemic. But I was so young that I, I didn't know what it was about. And I thought it was going to be over pretty quickly. Um, but it just kept going. There were times in, I think, in 21 where I was like 700 cranes behind and my fingertips were getting smooth. And I thought, Oh my gosh, what have I done? But, you know, it would ebb and flow, ebb and flow. And I would catch up and thankfully it was over three years or 
three and a half years period of time that I was folding these. Um, because if you were to ask me today to start folding 10,797 cranes for someone, I don't think I would volunteer to do it. And there's a reason because I'm a person that doesn't like repetition at all, at all. So I'm even surprised at myself that I stayed with this um, through the whole process. Um, I guess there was a very strong need to reach out to people I didn't even know and let them know that, you know, there are people out there that are caring for you and they're concerned and they want you to. What mm-hmm. kinds of things do they say to you? First of all, they share their story about their loved ones. And they tell me about the struggles that they or their loved one had at the end of their life and how difficult it was and how devastating to some of them. Um, And, you know, they shared tears with me. Um, They shared their thank yous. They gave me hugs. Um, They, you know, they really seemed to appreciate that their loved one was being remembered. When that started happening um, and we ran out of space in the church to display the cranes, a friend of mine and I were talking and I said, I wonder if it would be beneficial to be able to try to get this to other parts in the state, especially those counties that lost the most people and reach out to those people who are suffering to help them in their grieving process. Um, And so she is the person I'm working with now to you know, when we get to each location, she helps me with the marketing side of things. Um, and at each location, I rarely get a negative comment. I'm not saying that there aren't any because there are, because there are differing opinions. Um, but I would say overwhelmingly, people are very appreciative of being uh, having their loved one included. It's hard to think of something negative about it. Looking at it, it's quite, I mean, it's quite beautiful. I know that there was a lot of political views that were differing on how the pandemic developed, whether it was as much of a threat as some think it is or was. I've gotten a few negative comments that this was, this whole thing was a political farce or it was made up or it was made worse than it was. People didn't actually die from COVID, those kinds of things. That was something else that was bothering me because I know there were a lot of families that had political division and don't even talk to one another. I can't talk to one another anymore because of it. There were people who were saying things and I was listening and wondering, I wonder how someone who just lost their loved one would react to those kind of comments that this was not a big deal, that this was not a threat. I don't know how those people that lost loved ones would even begin to understand what that person must be thinking. You said you wanted to display the exhibition in the 10 counties in Iowa that saw the most COVID-19 deaths. Certainly, Woodbury County is one of those counties. Yes. So was Polk and Dallas, um, Dubuque, Lynn, Johnson, uh, Potawatomi. Have you ever done such a large project before? I have not. No, I specialize in painting and drawing. And most of what I do are natural landscapes in Iowa or Midwest. Uh, I do do still life. Um, so I don't do three-dimensional things traditionally. So, um, yeah, this is, this is not an extreme jump for me. Origami is not that big of a jump. 
um, a difficult jump. What I mean is I'm not <laughs> creating something um, mind-blowing, but um, it, it's sheer size sure does make an impact. That was Clive artist Pam Douglas talking about her exhibit, Folding Cranes and Folding Community, on display now at Western Iowa Tech Community College, suspended in the atrium next to the Overlook Cafe. It will be on display for six months. Well, that's it for this edition of The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. We'll see you next week. Have a good weekend.